0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people." Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the word of the Lord. And
1: this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that we get to read your word, and we get to hear your word, see your word. Father, that even though Jesus may not be bodily, physically present with us, we see him in his word. For he is the word. And, Father, as we study your word this morning, as we study Jesus, as we study you and your spirit, and, Father, may we look to you for everything. Father, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Peter begins uh, this book with this salvation, defining for us what this salvation is. God's gracious election. God's merciful new birth. And God's purifying and persevering our faith so that one day we would see and behold Jesus. That we would would have the faith that when we see Him, we would respond to the praise of His glorious grace, right? And then now... Beginning last week, in, in many ways, Peter has begun talking about what's next. Even for, let me remind us of the context, even for the persecuted, for the broken, for the uncertain, he's defined what is next. He's defining what is next, and that is growth in this salvation. That does not mean just what's next, and here's the list of do's and don'ts, but he's talking about this growing up into the likeness of Jesus. We become like Him, that our salvation itself would grow. That's always what's next. There's not a day that goes by or should go by that growth in the salvation not be your top priority. To know the salvation, to grow it, to live in it. Last week, Peter told us that this growth was initiated by God's saving grace. And he says, you've tasted this. But that also the taste of sinfulness stunts this growth. It, it, it harms it. It stunts it. But that also pure, the pure milk of the Word and the craving of the pure milk of the Word perseveres this growth. So we're just continuing in that and 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 this week we'll be again in verses one through ten. Next week we'll be in one through ten again, where we're going to circle back next week to kind of focus in on the cornerstone aspect, okay? So you can kind of see last week and this week and next week is kind of three parts in one particular passage, okay? It's the joy of preaching verse by verse through the Bible. It's also the struggle. Uh, to not know when to move on. So, this week, Peter's going to talk a lot about, or we're going to talk a lot about identity and calling. The idea of being set apart. You know, before the fall, not the season, but Genesis 3, the fall, Adam and Eve were God's people. And they believed that he was good. They knew it without a doubt. They believed it. And they enjoyed belonging to God, their father and creator. And they walked with him in the cool of the day, not like today. Today's quite hot. They behaved then accordingly by exercising authority under God, but on behalf of God over creation. But then as we know the story, they began to doubt that God was good and that, that they were safely His. And so they ate and rebelled, chose believing that they could decide what is right and wrong on their own. And then because of that, they hid in shame because their belonging in purity began to wane they rebelled against God behaving inappropriately and since the fall we've been in this crisis of identity if you will who am I where do I belong can I belong where's my people what am I to believe can I find a people to believe the same do I conform to the beliefs of these people now how do I behave We see this all over our culture you see this in the church That which we identify with. The tribe that we belong to. Oftentimes, we don't realize, and and part of where I want to push on today is the tribe to which we believe we belong to will be that which drives our beliefs and shapes our behaviors. Just to name a few tribes that... Would kind of be broad strokes, broad generalizations here. <clears throat> Republican evangelicalism. It's a tribe. Democratic progressivism. It's a tribe. Those who ascribe to critical theory or critical race theory, etc. Moral relativism, the new sexual ethics, Marxism, nationalism, self-helpism. Prosperity. These are all tribes. uh, All kind of sweeping generalizations. These are all tribes of our day. And here is my question. What tribe do you most relate to? What tribe do you most belong to? If you were standing before the court, to which tribe would the evidence indict you? I'm not saying, which would you verbally claim? But to which tribe would the evidence say you belong most to? Do we recognize how influenced we are by the tribes of mankind? How much our belief, our belonging, our behavior is shaped by these things, and to put it in the words of 1 Peter, how much darkness we still live in. If we are to grow in salvation, we must learn these few things as Christians what we believe, where we belong, and how we behave. Those will be the three points today what we believe, where we belong, and how we behave. Again, we're talking about how do we grow in salvation. Not, here's the list of do's and don'ts. Talking about how the actual process works. Sure, there will be do's and don'ts in the midst of that. But they're an outworking of this salvation. You see, Peter says... In verse 5 of chapter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying We are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That is where we are headed. That is the purpose for which you and I were redeemed. I don't know if you realize this, but the primary work of the gospel. Is not getting you out of hell and into heaven. It's not helping you be more self aware or socially conscious. The primary work of the gospel is God leaving heaven, cleansing his people of their sins, and making them into a spiritual house in which he would dwell. It's the primary work of the gospel. See, the spiritual house which he is building begins with believing. Believing, first and foremost, in the resurrected Christ. Believing in the resurrected Christ. In verse 7, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become... The cornerstone. So believe what? Believe what? The chosen and precious cornerstone. Believe that. Christians, believe that. It means every day we must wake up saying, do I believe this? Let me put it in other terms. The chosen and precious cornerstone. Believing the historical reality of Jesus, His death, and His resurrection. Believing, foundational. In verse eight of chapter one, let me remind you of what what Peter said. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You can't miss the fact that this believing is rooted and founded upon this new birth. You've not seen him. The only way that you and I believe in Him and love Him is because God has given us a heart to believe it. To love it. He has given us new birth. We've been given faith through that to trust in Christ even though we've not seen Him. And last week in verse 3, we have tasted and believed that He is good. So believe what? How about believe how? It's not simply intellectual. It's certainly not only emotional but a conviction, this chosen and precious cornerstone. It is both a reality, it is something objective, it is also something that we love. It is a conviction. It's something, as I said last week, quoting someone else, it's something that holds you. A belief is said to be something that you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. You you understand it with your mind, as my theology professor said in seminary, but you also see the glory of it with your heart. You understand it with your mind, but you also see the glory of it. The good. See, Satan sees all of that which we also believe, and he believes them too, and for many of us with greater clarity and greater fervence than you and I do. But he doesn't see the goodness of it He doesn't see the glory and the weightiness of it, the importance of it, how much His life depends on it. Instead, we believe, knowing and treasuring the historical reality of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, and all that that means. You understand, believing this changes everything. Not just parts of your life. Life. In many ways this means that the and we'll kind of land here today but that our chief concern is nothing but the praise of God for the gospel of the glory of God shown in Christ through the death and resurrection of God. We say that again. Our chief concern is nothing but the praise of God for the gospel of the glory of God shown in Christ through his death and resurrection. Let me remind us, as as we think about believing how, that the gospel is an indicative, not an imperative. What do I mean by that? Certainly, there is now behavior that's appropriate to belief, but the gospel is not a list of things to do, it's a historical person and event to believe. It is an indicative. It is something that happened in the past. It has implications for today, but it's something we believe in. Believe that it was a historical reality. Being convinced of Jesus in such a way should drive the way we think, feel, and act. Ask the question at this point, even though we'll get to behaving later, how much of the way you think, feel, and act is driven by this conviction of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Without getting ahead to next week, the idea of it being a cornerstone, chosen and precious. He is saying everything we say and do and feel must be built upon this cornerstone. Let me also point out to you another reality in this believing. I, 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 at the risk of stating the obvious. But part of Peter's point here is that there are those who do believe and those who don't Believe. The imagery here implies two building projects. Two building projects. One done by human builders and the other one done by God. The human builders examine Christ and find Him unfit for building upon. This means, let me give you an implication of this. When you consider your own soul when you look at your neighbor, whether they claim to be a follower of Christ or not, what is the choice that you and I are making every day? Whether Jesus is fit to build our lives upon this day. Whether he is fit to build their lives upon this day. Listen, what you and I, what our neighbor needs most Is not the things that we tend to put in that blank. What you and I and our neighbors need most is to stop rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone. Now remember, remember the context. The people first reading these verses were being oppressed, were being persecuted. Being hurt and killed, even. And this is what God, through Peter, chose to tell them. What you need most is to not reject the cornerstone as those people do. He says that we have tasted. Peter says last week, we have tasted, believe in Jesus, the cornerstone, the foundation upon which a Christian is being built upon by God, and the house, secondly, to which you and I belong. Read in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Belonging, believing, now belonging, belonging to Christ and his people. Belonging to Christ and his people. I don't know if you realize this, but every person was created with the desire to belong. Adam and Eve in the garden with God and without shame or guilt, they belonged. Their identity was God's children in God's place under His rule and subsequent blessing. They, were, they belonged and there was no doubt they belonged to each other and they ultimately belonged to God. See, knowing that to which we belong is crucial. Listen, those outside of Christ will at best enjoy a life of identity crisis the whole time. Just when they think they've found it, a new job comes along, a broken relationship hits, a health complication ensues. Identity crisis at every turn. Where you belong directly affects everything about you. Where you believe you belong. And in many ways, it does it without you even thinking about it. best example I could think of in my own life is 10 years ago, my identity shifted, in part, to being a father. Almost immediately, there became a sense of responsibility for this little human in a new way. I had to feed it, take care of it, care for my wife, who's doing a lot of the taking care of him. And then the more I understand my identity as a father, the more I live it without even thinking about it. So let me ask you this question as you come in this morning. Do you come in feeling alone? Dejected? Maybe wondering if you belong to the wrong things? Peter wants us to know where we belong. He gives us five designations, if you will, of this belonging. Five designations of this belonging. He's going to define this belonging for us. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. That these designations, these descriptions, if you will, are not about status primarily, but they're about calling. So they're not, let, me, let me define that. They're not just statements about our position, Peter is making statements about our being set apart and what that calling looks like, what we're to live like. The first one he says is a chosen race. He says of God's people that you are a chosen race. I don't know if you realize this, but There are only two races as the Bible speaks of. Now There are multiple ethnicities and cultures around the globe, certainly in nations and tribes, not denying that. But there are two races. This is the way the Bible speaks of race. There is the race that is in Christ and the race that is not in Christ. So the race of Adam and the race of Jesus. The firstborn and the secondborn. Both races made up of lots of ethnicities and tribes and tongues and so on. The race that rejects the cornerstone and the race that believes in the cornerstone. The second thing you need to see here is that we didn't choose him, he chose us. He says, a chosen race. Listen, if you don't affirm election, then what does this phrase mean, really? What does it mean? Like, why would Peter write it? See see what I'm saying? First, this phrase would mean absolutely nothing. But if you embrace election, then this doesn't just mean something, it means everything because you were in this race headed for destruction. And He has chosen to bring you out of it into His marvelous light. He chose us. We were helpless, but He chose us. He's chosen to make us into the likeness of the race of Christ, which is the race to inherit the kingdom. What? I get to be a part of the race that loves God, that honors God, is set apart for His holiness, has life, and will one day live eternally with Him? Wow! It is good news. The problem is some of us are still hung up on the word election. But it's good news. We're a chosen race. Think about Peter, a lowly fisherman approached by Jesus who says, come follow me. That wasn't by accident. Jesus walking in submission to the Spirit. Peter's going to be the guy. I'll make you a fisher of men, he says. You fish for fish. I'm going to f- help you fish for men. Then Peter follows. And as some of you know, the, P- the life of Peter, Peter is loved by Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Peter is forgiven by Jesus. And then Peter is charged by Jesus to go feed his sheep. And this Peter, now in the midst of exile, in the midst of a people who are being accused of being antisocial, they were being accused of destroying businesses, of disrupting families, of avoiding certain civic duties. In this great opposition, this Peter is saying to himself and to us that you're a chosen race. You belong to a different race of people than the world around you. This is who you belong to. You don't belong to that tribe there or this one here. You belong to a different race. So, the question I have for you today is do you belong to this family? This race? Do you wake up every morning saying, I don't believe it. I'm a part of God's chosen race. We're struggling in silence, trying to walk faithfully with the Lord. Let me remind you today, dear Christian, you're a chosen race. You're a chosen race. God has picked you to be in the line of Jesus. God has plucked you from the race of Adam And made you a part of the race of Christ. You don't struggle in silence alone. He has set you apart. And set you apart to live differently than the race of Adam around you. So does this shape the way we think and act and emote? We're a chosen race. Next, we're a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We are the people of the new covenant in Christ. We have royal and priestly blood running in our veins. Do you know what that means? In part, it means we have priestly responsibilities. We now administer God in Christ to the nations, to our neighbors. As priests, we have responsibilities to sacrifice our lives for the kingdom to give up our conveniences for God's glory. What are you sacrificing for Jesus this morning? What did you sacrifice as a royal priest this past week? What about in places like our finances or our time? or other conveniences? Do we do that like a royal priest? Do you look at every conversation, whether that's with your spouse, or your kids, or your friends, or your neighbor, as an opportunity to call someone to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for their sins? Is every opportunity a chance to be a royal priest? I would encourage you, give up your small ambitions and give your life to serving God. whether that's being a faithful parent serving in children's ministry pursuing eldership bringing being a faithful school teacher whatever it is you're a royal priesthood you are to mediate the gospel you're to share the gospel to your neighbors next he says a holy nation a holy nation These terms describe, again, our relationship to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are to live, our calling, being set apart. We're set apart as a holy nation. I don't know if you realize this, but first century Christians were not persecuted because they worshiped God, but because they claimed that God in Christ was the only one to be worshiped. That's why they were persecuted. Peter's giving us here a description of unity coming together under one national leader. That's the, the picture that he's describing for us. This is the nation we belong to. It's something I have to ask, why do we as Christians long so much to belong to other Nations. Why? Why do we long to belong to the nation of Republican America or progressive America? Or things like financial prosperity or your best life now? All these tribes Listen, I'm not partic- picking on any particular cult or tribe. I'm picking on all of them. All of us have bought into the values of the nations we ascribe to. But he says, Peter says to these people, and he says to us, "We're a holy nation. We're to buy into the values of our holy leader, Jesus." We are to taste and see that his holiness is good. He defines the ways of our nation. I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in us as a people, regardless of what in the world goes on out there. And here's the reality. You and I, Are oftentimes, I think, unaware of the extent to which we have bought into the values of the nations around us, just as Israel did in the land of Canaan. How much of our values are defined by the holy nation to which we have been bought and brought into? He says, We are God's special possession. God's special possession. So this holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. Some are and some are not. This is ultimately the truth of every person. You're either God's or you are not. I mean, He certainly owns everything, but you're either His special possession or you are not. But it also means that we are His and His alone. He does not share His possession in the sense that we could belong or Be owned by anyone or anything else. That also means that He owns everything. If we are His possession, then He owns us and everything that relates to us. He owns our money, our time, our thoughts, our emotions. He owns our successes and He owns our sorrows. Again, if you were to be charged with living like you belong to God how much evidence would there be to convict you? To those who maybe struggle with discouragement, depression, do you, do you know that you belong to God? If so, why is your head so low? You're a God's special possession. You're His. And He is yours. We need to go back. Our identity is not wrapped up in our singleness, our marriages, our children, no children, our jobs, our mental abilities, our skin colors, our abuse, our upbringing. This is our identity now. God's special possession. God's special possession. That's who you are. Peter goes on. Not just God's special position, possession, but as those, we are those who have received God's mercy. Let me ask you this question: When you wake up in the morning, do you stretch out your arms and legs, and in the midst say, "I have received God's mercy"? I should be under impending judgment and God's just wrath for my rebellion, but the King. Has shown me mercy. Listen, if God has given you new birth to believe and treasure the historical Jesus who died and was resurrected, then you have received mercy and all the mercy that you will ever need. All of it. You don't have to ask for more, it's all yours. Oh sure, we can say to the Lord, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy. And we should say that every day. But all of it is ours. You have received his mercy. You belong to that tribe. To grow in this salvation requires us to continue believing what is right. And to know where we belong but growing into salvation also means a change in behaving. Look at verse 9 again with me again. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And then he says this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Behaving as those walking in marvelous light light I remember this is not like oh so we're the enlightened ones and no one else listen we we have no grounds to even think that way for he is the one who chose right he is the we are the chosen race not just the race we didn't just come up with this on our own he gave us new birth to believe We walk in marvelous light because we've received mercy, not because we did anything to get it. He says here, once we lived in darkness, the darkness of our ignorance concerning the gospel and His glory. Namely, believing that we were good enough on our own to determine good and evil, right and wrong, and judging that we could be righteous enough apart from God. That's what happened in the garden, and we've been living in that ignorance and that darkness ever since. Walking in this darkness, in this ignorance, as he called it in a previous verse. Pastor Jeff sent me an excerpt from a, from a sermon from a pastor in Oregon. Some of you know who Josh White is. Um, he's actually a singer, he sang some songs with a guy named Josh Garrels. So he pastors this church in the middle of Oregon, and I listened to this sermon. It's really helpful, I think, in describing for us. Some of the present darkness to which we are so tempted to step back into. So let me paraphrase a portion of what he said. Quoting from this book called "Strange Rights: The New Religion in the Godless Age," he says this: "Our sins, if they exist at all, lie in insufficient self-attention or self-care. We have the moral responsibility to take care of ourselves before directing any attention to any others. Again, he's quoting someone else. And that's the end of him quoting someone else. He says this, it is, it is the false peace that our society will grab a hold of at all costs, but will only leave bitterness in their mouths, because the proclamation of the Scriptures is the exact opposite. There is no self-discovery apart from a right relationship to God, as we say yes to his yes in Jesus over us, We have a world around us that is pursuing religion to ease the nagging voice of the conscience. The religions of, of this day, some examples. Various political movements, social movements, make America great again, black lives matters, self-helpism. But nothing can satisfy the human heart except the gospel. And we can give ourselves to these things and we can follow these things and join sides with these fallen minds. But have we stopped reading the Bible? Because the Bible tells us something fundamentally that we have forgotten. That sin continues to be the heart of the problem because it's always a problem of the heart. When we forget that, we just repeat history. This is part of the darkness that we often live in. I don't know if you guys realize this, but these religions are the essence of the Antichrist. Partial ethics of the kingdom apart from the gospel of the kingdom. Let's take some of the good things of Christianity, divorce them from the gospel of Christianity, and that's how Satan comes as an angel of light. This is the former ignorance that we were a part of. This is the darkness that you and I were called out of. So, churches are filled with this religion, and it's easy for us to slip into it. Replacing the gospel with things like self help. Told people how they can experience their best life now, or given our attention. To relieving all sorts of problems apart from the gospel. Do you know how many sermons that I've heard? We want you to know yourself better than you know anything. In fact, we want you to know, as you come to church, yourself better than you even know Jesus. But, church, for every one look we take into ourselves, we should take ten looks at Jesus. Ten looks at Jesus. Wherever sin is alive in us and well, self love, pride, and personal exaltation is often at play. They are the things that go hidden in religion and hidden in the church. Do you understand that? Where sin is alive and well, self-love, pride, personal exaltation is often at play. These go hidden in religiosity often. That is why the church can be one of the most deadliest places to be. It's the place where we can most easily feel okay with God when we are indeed far from Him. We can taste this tribe, taste this tribe, and taste this one here. Checking boxes. Religion oftentimes allows us to cloak the selfishness with spiritual meaning and it makes it more difficult to get to the root of it. That's the end of my paraphrase. Listen, that is the kingdom of this age. That is the darkness that is around us, that is, come, know yourself, be aware, be self aware. Come, let's get rid of all these evils. We got this. We can do it on our own. The ethics of the kingdom. divorced from the gospel of the kingdom. We're not good on our own. Salvation is not in knowing ourselves better or doing things more correctly. It's not in financial prosperity or in our poverty. Instead, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation we've been brought out of that darkness we need to ask the question where am I still influenced by that darkness because he says now we live in marvelous light we live in marvelous light we live in the light of God's glorious grace We've seen a glimpse of Jesus. We have tasted and know that He is better and that all that other stuff is bitter. We now know that the answer is not in us. The answer is in Jesus. He's the only one who satisfies our deepest longings, and He is the only one who could satisfy God's wrath upon our rebellion. The only one. the answer is that we need new birth to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. So how do we behave? How do these people behave? How do these people of God behave? We stop dancing in the darkness. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Some things we just don't have to pray about. Just chuck it. We stay far away from the darkness. We don't associate with the darkness. Shouldn't be labeled among the darkness. Do we understand how much of our behavior is influenced by the darkness? Light and darkness have no fellowship together. But what's he say? These people who are in this marvelous light, what do they do? What do they do? They declare his praises, his excellencies. Does your actions, your words, do they say that God has given you new life, that He's rescued you from your ignorance, that He's relieved you of your burden and the wrath due for your sin, and that God has brought you into light, that He is holy and good and just and merciful and righteous? Declare His praises. Declare His praises in the way you tie your shoes or the way you give shots at the hospital, the way you parent your kids, the way you drive your car the messages you post, the conversations with your neighbors across the hall. Declare His praises in all of these places. Declare His excellencies. Declare everything that is good and holy about our God. Declare how the Gospel changes everything in us and around us. A Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I don't need the religions of this world. Whatever whatever form it takes, we need Jesus the cornerstone and everything that means. We believe the death and resurrection of Jesus. We belong to the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and those who have received God's mercy. And we behave as those who have been brought out of darkness into marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us To fall back into or to not realize the places which we are influenced by the things of this world, the tribes, the religions, the nation around us. And it's easy for us to sit in pride and to think we have it all figured out. I know where I'm right, I know where I'm wrong, I know where I'm influenced by the right things or in the wrong things and so on and so forth. It's easy for us to do this. It would have been very tempting and was tempting for those to whom Peter was writing to believe all the same things. For them to slip back into belonging, believing, and behaving like the cults and the tribes around them. That's why Peter reminds them You have tasted that the Lord is good. That stuff's bitter. That's why Peter reminds them of who they are now and to whom they belong. And then now they behave differently. Father, please reveal to our hearts the places in which we are influenced by this world. Please rid them from our hearts. That we would behold your Son, Jesus, as those brought into marvelous light. That we would live and behave accordingly, Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.